Thanks, Bill. Hey, well, good morning again. <clears throat> it's great to see all of you. Before I get into my talk, just a reminder that um, right now, JT and five other people from the church are down in Miami, uh, and I think they'll soon be getting on a flight to fly to Brazil. So they're going to be in Brazil for two weeks on a short-term mission trip, so please uh, keep them in your prayers. Well, as Bill just said, this weekend I get to wrap up this wonderful series that we've been in called Ruth, uh, Redeeming Love. We've been looking at the book of Ruth, and if you've missed any of this series, the, uh, there's three previous talks. Uh, you can uh, go to vcdc.org and listen to those, or uh, you can download our podcast on iTunes or whatever podcast app you use, or you can grab a CD. We have a bunch of CDs. I think we still have a bunch of CDs out at the info counter. Um, when I look at the book of Ruth, and, and Ruth is a book you could zip right on by. It's just this tiny little book squished between Judges and 1 Samuel. And when you look at the books around Ruth and all the history and all the interaction and crazy stories and miracles and all the stuff that God's doing, I look at Ruth and, and a question pops popped into my mind of, like, why would God take this little story, this little love story, and preserve it? You know, have it added to the canon of Holy Scripture. I mean, why, why did God preserve this little story in the Bible? People have read the book of Ruth for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they will continue reading this little book until Jesus comes back. Some people would say it's in a week. Some people would say it's in a thousand or thousands of years. But this little book, uh, I find myself asking, why this little book? Uh, God doesn't, there's no audible interaction in this book between God and people. There are no conversations, no, you know, uh, between God and, and human beings. There are no uh, obvious miracles in this little book. There are no obvious demonstrations of God's power. The book of Ruth is such a human story. It's, I think that's one of the reasons why it's such a great story is it's just so relatable. It's so human. It's a story of people going through really hard times. And really what we see in this story is... Uh, are people who are really doing what they need to do to survive. Uh, it starts off by painting a picture, a real hopeless, uh, painful picture. But what we're going to see this morning in chapter four is that this story is, like any good story, is heading towards a very tie a bow on it, a very happy ending. And so let me quickly uh, review the first three chapters to get us ready for chapter four. So I'm gonna do this auctioneer style. Well, maybe not that fast. But um, if you missed any of it, here's, here we go. Ding, 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 ding. No, but uh, in the first chapter, we met this woman named Naomi. She is a Jewish woman who lives in a little town of Bethlehem, and there's a famine in the land, so her, her husband Elimelech, and their two lads, Malan and Kilian, they uh, head off to the east to, to the country of Moab, and uh, when they get there, <coughs> excuse me, while in Moab, their two sons marry a couple of Moabite ladies named Orpah and Ruth, and then over the next year, uh, life gets really hard. Over the next 10 years, uh, Elimelech, Malan, Killian all die, leaving three widows. And to add to their pain, uh, Naomi's daughters-in-law are both barren. And so Naomi hears uh, that there's food back in Bethlehem. The famine is over, and so she decides she's going to go back. She's going to go home. And he, she tells her two daughters-in-law, hey, look, I have nothing for you. I have nothing to offer you. Go back to your families. I'm going to Bethlehem. And Orpah uh, quickly says, okay, pretty much. And Ruth says, 
No. And she says this beautiful statement of loyalty and commitment where she says, you know, uh, uh, no, uh, your, what, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And if you were here for the first weekend, Heather did such a great job. And she pointed out in this section that this was more than just a, you know, a really kind thing to say to Naomi. This really was uh, Ruth's conversion where she wasn't just geographically moving away from her family. She was leaving her family. She was leaving her gods, the gods of her family, and she was following Naomi, and she was embracing the one true God of Israel. Uh, and so together, as we come to the end of chapter one, Naomi and Ruth head back to Bethlehem, and, and, and they arrive there to, to cause quite a commotion. Chapter two, Andrew is looking at chapter two, and in chapter two, what we see is Ruth. They need to survive. They have no food. They need to get some food, and uh, so she goes out to glean behind the harvesters, meaning she goes out into the fields to, uh, it's harvest season, to, to follow the, the workers and pick up you know, the little bits of grain, uh, you can tell I'm not a farmer, but uh, little bits of stuff that's left behind. And uh, uh, it just so happens that the field that Ruth is working in belongs to this wonderful man named Boaz. Boaz. What a great name. And uh, he is very kind to Ruth. Uh, not only does he allow her to continue working in his field, he proceeds to provide protection for her and uh, extra food in some very creative ways and uh, for her to take home to Naomi. And real quickly, what we see in chapter two is that a romance blossoms between uh, Ruth and Boaz and Naomi uh, is all for this because Boaz is one of her close relatives. Uh, he is a kinsman redeemer. I know last weekend JT used the phrase guardian redeemer. I was raised with kinsman redeemer, so that's what I'm gonna use. Hope that doesn't mess you up. But we're gonna talk a little bit more about that, but that brings us to the end of chapter two. And then chapter three, last weekend, we see Naomi encouraging Ruth uh, to pursue this man, to pursue Boaz. And last week, JT did, did a great job in, in leading us through their rendezvous uh, in the barn where Ruth uh, boldly expressed her desire towards Boaz. And Boaz uh, showed himself to be the true gentleman that, that he is or was by pledging his desire for her and his commitment to do all that he can to redeem her, which means to to take her as, uh, as his wife. But then, like any good story, right at the end of chapter three, to add to the suspense, we find out, wait a minute, there's another man. And uh, there's another kinsman redeemer who is a closer relative to Elimelech than Boaz, which means that this guy, this kinsman redeemer, this other kinsman redeemer, he has the first right to, uh, to redeem Ruth. And uh, so the chapter three ends with Ruth returning home early in the morning after her very appropriate evening in the barn to report to Naomi how the evening went. And chapter three ends with Naomi saying this, just be patient, my daughter, until we hear what happens. The man, Boaz, he will not rest until he has settled things today. So that brings us to chapter four. Let's, uh, let's pray. And then we will continue the story of Ruth. Let's pray. <clears throat> so Lord, I thank you for uh, another opportunity to gather together. Lord, I thank you for each one that's here, each family that's represented. And I, uh, I pray that you would just calm all of our hearts, our minds, that, uh, that you would tune us into you today, tune us into your heart, your presence. Lord, uh, 
I am convinced, I believe your word would say that every time we gather, every time we look at the Bible, that it is an opportunity to learn, to grow, to be changed. And I pray that you would do what we, we can't do on our own. Lord, just come and uh, point out what, you know, what, what's the takeaway for us today. So we welcome you here in Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you have a Bible, please turn to Ruth. It's right between Judges and 1 Samuel. <clears throat> if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles at the front, back. Uh, feel free to grab one. It's also gonna be on the screens. But I'm gonna start uh, by reading in uh, verse, chapter four, verses one through six. Here's what it says. Boaz went to the town gate and took a seat there. Just then the kinsman redeemer he had mentioned came by, so Boaz called out to him. Come over here and sit down, friend. I want to talk to you. So they sat down together. Then Boaz called 10 leaders from the town and asked them to sit as witnesses. And Boaz said to the family redeemer, you know Naomi, who came back from Moab. She is selling the land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should speak to you about it so, you, so that you can redeem it if you wish. If you want the land, then buy it here in the presence of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know right away because I am next in line to redeem it after you. The man replied, all right, I'll redeem it. Then Boaz told him, of course, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. Well, then I can't redeem it, the family redeemer replied, because this might endanger my own estate. You redeem the land, I cannot do it. All right, number one in your notes, if you're a note taker, is uh, the true kinsman redeemer. Okay, the true kinsman redeemer. In chapter three, we found out that there was another kinsman redeemer besides Boaz, and now in chapter four, we finally get to meet this guy. And you know what? Uh, it's interesting to me that in a story with key characters, uh, where each character is named, it, it just stood out to me that uh, we're now introduced to what I would say is another key character in the story, and yet uh, this guy is not given a name, or, or we don't, you know, his name isn't, isn't in the story. We don't know what his name is. In fact, uh, you know, you think about in a culture, in the Jewish culture, that you no know, naming is so incredibly important. Your name really, uh, it's way more than something that sounds cool. Uh, it, it, it really is reflective of your character. And, and uh, in fact, in this story, not only do we not have his name, uh, Boaz calls him friend. And the Hebrew word that's used there is a word poloni. And it, and it says, well, you can see there, it says uh, a certain one. And a couple of the commentaries that I read this week, some biblical smaller scholars, some smart folks, they said that really what this word means and the way, the phrase that we would use to describe the word poloni is what they called this guy is, in the story, is so-and-so, right? And so to me, I go, okay, when I say, you know, so-and-so, there's not a lot of fondness there. And so I wonder... What kind of character so-and-so uh, uh, that he had? And I think, I think the reason he doesn't get a name is because his purpose in the story is twofold. One is just to add drama. I mean, what's a good romance without another man in the story? To just sort of mess up, you know, to, to cause that, that wonderful tension and drama. But another reason is, and I think way more importantly, is that this guy, this so-and-so, he's there to demonstrate to us how a true kinsman redeemer should not act. 
In many ways, he's there to contrast Boaz and to show just the beauty and the kindness of Boaz. And uh, you can read more about the role of a kinsman redeemer in Leviticus 25, but here's a simple definition. I hope this is helpful. A kinsman redeemer is a male relative who according to the various laws God gave had the privilege or responsibility to act on behalf of a relative who is in trouble, danger, or need. The Hebrew term for kinsman redeemer designates one who delivers or rescues or redeems property or person. Now, as we're getting into this story a little more, think about this. Think about what it says about God and the heart of God. Think about what it says about the value God puts on you and I caring for those closest to us. That God, in, in, in delivering his law to his people, that he actually put it into the law that if a family member, be it an immediate family member or an extended family member, if someone is in trouble, if someone is in need, if someone is in danger, that it's, it's your responsibility to step in and to help that person. I mean, it's, it's, it's the law. It was expected that you would do this. In fact, uh, Deuteronomy 25, we're not gonna go there, but for the note takers, you can write that down. There was great shame put on a family member, a kinsman redeemer, who had the means but not the will to do it to carry out their responsibility. And I think that's what we see in this story. That's what we see in the section that I just read. Uh, it's early in the morning. Uh, the heart of Boaz is full of love for Ruth. <clears throat> and he is determined to make this transaction uh, work in his favor. And, and again, I am reading into the story. <clears throat> but I think Boaz, well, no, I, don't, I think this is fair. I mean, Bethlehem wasn't that big. He knows this guy. Beth, uh, Boaz knows old so-and-so. And so I think in, just in the way that Boaz presents uh, you know, the, his, uh, what he want, he's trying to accomplish, I think it says a lot that the Boaz knows how to, to maybe hook this guy in, but they've gathered at the town gate. It's like the town hall. It's the place where business transactions go down. And it's all in the presence of witnesses. He calls 10 witnesses. And at a time when you didn't have lawyers to hire or contracts to sign, uh, uh, they have witnesses come to witness the transaction. At first, Boaz mentions only uh, the land that's for sale. And the guy is quick to respond. Got it. Land. Got the money. No problem. Let's do it. I'll redeem it. But then, and this is where Boaz is so wise in the way he, he presents this, the, the issue. Then Boaz throws in another part of the deal. Verse 5. I'll read it again. Of course, of course, uh, your purchase of the land from Naomi also requires that you marry Ruth, the Moabite widow. That way she can have children who will carry on her husband's name and keep the land in the family. And part of the kinsman redeemer's role was to, in, in redeeming the land, was to look after any widow that may have been attached to that land. Obviously, the, the land was being sold because there was no one to work the land. Her husband was dead. And uh, so in the case of Naomi, his, the kinsman redeemer's responsibility to her would have been, because she was well beyond her childbearing years, his responsibility would be to care for her needs. You know, that she would have uh, shelter, that she would have... Um, uh, food, that she would have cable TV, all the important things of life. But in Ruth's case, it was different. Uh, it was expected that the kinsman redeemer would take this widow 
as his wife. And you could have more than one wife in, these, in those days with the hopes of provi- providing for her a child so that her family name wouldn't stop, that her family name would continue, in a sense, to redeem the family la- name. And in this time in history, this time in culture, and, and uh, JT hit on this hard last weekend, a woman's place in society was very low. And so much more. I mean, we look at Ruth. Here is a woman who now has no husband. She has no children. She has no land. Therefore, she has no hope. I mean, she would be seen as someone who, who really almost like a cursed one. Like she would have a reputation for what? Like what did Ruth do? What did she do to so anger God that he would unload on her the way he has? I mean, what a reputation, what a label to carry around uh, her neck. And, and so Boaz says, hey, uh, you know, the, you, you get the land, but you, you also need to marry Ruth. And at this, the kinsman redeemer, oh, suddenly the deal doesn't look so good. At this, he backs out, and, you know, and it doesn't say why, does it? It doesn't totally say why he backs out. It could have been financial. Was he concerned that in adding Ruth and, and future children, was he concerned that this was going to impact the estate for his existing wife and kids, that it was going to fragment more now? I think more likely his reason for backing out was because he wanted nothing to do with the Moabite woman. Um, uh, Remember that the Moabites were a despised race of people, especially the Moabite women. There's a story in Numbers 25. We're not going to read it, but I encourage you to read it. Numbers 25, there's a very crazy story where thousands of Israelite men, this, is in, this would have been looking back into their history, thousands of Israelite men died because they were messing around with Moabite women. And so I wonder, and I don't, I don't think this is, I'm reading into it too much, I wonder if the gossip in the town when Naomi came back was, you know why her sons died? You know why they died? They married Moabites. They married Moabite women. That's why they died. I would not, I don't think that's a stretch at all. And so this guy is looking at it, he's thinking of his reputation, like, no thanks, I'm not going to marry a Moabite woman. And so he backs out. The first guy had the means. He's a relative. He had the money. But he did not have the will, the desire to to be the kinsman redeemer. For him, it was all about the land. But what I love about Boaz, for Boaz, it was all about Ruth. And I asked in the intro, why was this book preserved? This this, this totally human, very down-to-earth book, why was it preserved in the Bible? And one of the reasons is because Boaz is a a picture of Jesus. Boaz is a picture of of the heart of God that doesn't just uh, love us and pursue us and uh, redeem us out of a sense of duty, but he does it out of a sense of love of great love, and and, you know, what we see in Boaz is a glimpse of the great love Jesus has for you and I. What we see in the actions, the attitude of Boaz is is a glimpse of the love that God has for the world, that God, I mean, the book of Ruth tells us that God is a rescuing, redeeming God. And what I love about this story is, it's like Ruth, uh, uh, the narrator, the writer of the story, goes out of his way to make it clear that God you know, doesn't, doesn't just rescue the people who have got it all together. God doesn't just rescue the people who are going to produce. God rescues the most unlikely people. 
I mean, this is a woman who had everything against her. I mean, God is a God who loves to go after the down and outer, the outcast, the Cinderella, the Cinderfella, if you will, that he loves to go after people and he loves to lift them up and take them to the ball. That's what God did. That's, that's a picture of what Boaz is doing. That's just a glimpse of the love of God that he loves to rewrite people's stories. The book of Ruth tells us, uh, uh, reminds us that nobody, I mean, think about yourself. Think about people in your family, right? The book of Ruth reminds us that nobody is beyond the love and rescuing power of Jesus. Nobody is, right? And, and that's what this story tells us. That, Ruth, that when Boaz looked across the field at Ruth, this foreigner, this poor woman, this widow, when he looked across the field, she grabbed his heart. Who is that, he said. And he pursued her. Boaz saw her and loved her. Boaz not only had the means, he was a relative, he had the money, he also had the will. Did he ever have the will, the desire to redeem her? And think about this. Who, Boaz was taking all the risk. His reputation was on the line. You're going you're gonna to marry who? Boaz? I mean, it was, all, it was all at his expense to redeem Ruth. And there was no promise of a future heir. I mean, I don't think we can comprehend. I know I can't comprehend how at this time in, in history, an heir was everything. It was everything. And Boaz took the risk of marrying a woman who was barren. He took the risk. Boaz points to Jesus, who is the true kinsman redeemer, who at great cost and at great risk, he redeemed us. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ, <laughs> that didn't sound super confident. While we were yet, I should, have, we should, I should have coached you earlier. While we were yet sinners, I mean, think about this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, while we were yet sinners, Christ redeemed us. At the cost of what? At the cost of his life. Right? And talk about risk. I mean, here's another way to put it, and this may backfire. But while we were yet Michigan fans, Jesus bought us, hear me out, Jesus bought us lifelong season tickets to the shoe. <laughs> See, now you're like, oh, now I'm listening. But think about that. That's sort of a picture. There's no, there's, they may never change. We may never accept the gift that cost Jesus his life, right? Talk about a risk when he redeemed you. And what I love about the story, when, in, when for Boaz to take Ruth as his wife, I mean, he changed her life. And what I mean is this, he totally impacted her past. He has now removed the label that's put on her, that you know, she is a cursed one, she is unloved. He has totally changed her past, her reputation. He's totally changed her present. Now she is a loved one. Now she has a home. Now she has a family. Now she has a land. He has totally renewed her future. Ruth, come, come under my cover. Let me care for you. Let me protect you. I mean, how much more Jesus. That's just the start. That Jesus is able to do something that we can't do. He's got a time machine. Jesus is able to remove the, your reputation. Your, you know what I'm saying? Like things from the past that are like stickers all over you that you did or that were done to you. That Jesus is able to, to remove those off of you. To remove the reputation that the things said, the things people have 
put on you. Jesus totally changes our present. He invites us into a wonderful family. He promises to care for all our needs. He promises to never leave us. He's always with us. And talk about, you know, rewriting our future. Talk about covering our future. He, he not only says, I've got you covered till, till, you know, till you die. He's like, I've got you covered, covered forever. I'm the true kinsman redeemer. And I am all about rewriting people's stories. Listen, to, uh, don't go there yet, uh, Doug. There's a song we used to sing in the vineyard years ago, back in the 80s back when we were just discovering electricity. And it's, some of you will recognize this. It's like a, it is like a lullaby. Let me read these lyrics to you. This is the heart of the true kinsman redeemer. It says, I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, Overcoming one, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. Isn't that beautiful? Isn't that beautiful? That, that's what a, the kinsman redeemer does. He changes your name. He changes your past, your present, your future. And, and it is so important that we grow in our understanding and experience of, of Jesus as the true kinsman redeemer because there's, there's this biblical principle of, you know, he or she that's been forgiven much, loves much, right? And the Bible teaches that, that we are only able to love, love the way Jesus wants to love uh, because of his love, right? So, so and, 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 and why I say that is this. There is a theme in the book of Ruth that it's not only a theme about people being redeemed. There's also a theme in Ruth where now we see God wanting to use people. Uh, we see God wanting to use people to now redeem others. So there are people that God wants us to, as redeemed ones, now turn and to redeem them, to love them. And there's no way we'll be able to love them the way that he wants us to love them unless we really get in touch with how much we've been loved, how much we've been redeemed. So that's number one. The deal is done. The sandal is exchanged. Some of you might grab one of that. But let's continue the story. Ruth 4, verse 13 says this. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, praise the Lord, who has now provided a redeemer for your family. May this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and care for you in your old age, for he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby and cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if he were her own. The neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again, and they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. All right, number two in your notes is this. <coughs> it is the story within the story. And here's where I'm going with that. Uh, as I was read this section, or you know, if, as you, if you were to sit down and read through the book of Ruth, and you get to this section, which is a pretty pivotal part. I mean, really, I would say it's the climax of the story. They're finally married, and now they have this little boy. It's interesting to me that all of chapter two, all of chapter two talks about one day in the field. All of chapter three talks about one evening in the barn. And now we have one verse 
to describe the wedding of Boaz and Ruth and the birth of their son. Like, doesn't that seem like a little lopsided? And here's what I think is going on. I think what that is pointing to, the the writer of this story, he's telling us something. He's telling us that this story, it's, it's way more than just this nice little hallmarky romance between Boaz and Ruth. This story really is more about Naomi than it is about Ruth and Boaz. And it's actually bigger than Naomi. But what we see is that if you're familiar with the story, again, it starts with Naomi. What we just read, it ends with Naomi. And really what we see in the middle is the, in what God is doing in and through Boaz and Ruth, what we really see is the redemption of Naomi. That's what we see in the story, but it gets even bigger than that. Verse 17 ends off with just this little, let me just toss this in, and they named this little boy Obed. Oh, and he became the father of Jesse. Oh, by the way, who was the father of David? And suddenly you go, wait a minute. Wait a minute, David. We're not just talking about, you know, David, some David. This is the David, like the King David. Suddenly this little story takes on a whole new meaning. Um, One of the commentaries I read said that Ruth, the book of Ruth, is like a hinge book, meaning it, on one side, you've got the book of Judges, on the other side, you've got the book of 1 Samuel, and Judges is all about the darkness, the disobedience, just the mess that Israel was in, and that, and really, this this is like a, a, a picture of the book of Ruth, and that's how the book of Ruth starts off, isn't it? Hopeless mess. But then, how does the book of Ruth end? And it ends with totally a hopeful excitement of change. Like, it's going to get better now. And that's exactly why they say it's a hinge book, that we're going from the darkness of Judges to the glory of of King David. And uh, one of the commentaries I read, you know, we can't really prove this, of course, but but I think it's interesting that he says, I think the prophet Samuel wrote this story. And the fact that, we're not going to read this, the fact that the last part of Ruth goes through the 10 generations 10 generations leading to David, Uh, this commentary said that he believed that Samuel wrote that in because really a lot of Ruth was, you know, story within a story. It It was written as a defense of David's right to be the king. They had to look at his genealogy. And, but what we see in this story is there's very much a story within a story by pointing to King David. But it gets even bigger than that. Uh, you go into Matthew chapter 1, and in Matthew chapter 1, we see another long genealogy. And 26 generations after David, it says this, Matthew 1:16. it says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Suddenly, this little story is part of the greatest story. Super, super significant. Out of this family line comes the king, not just, you know, the great King David, comes the king of all kings. And so, another reason why this book was preserved, another reason why we were given Ruth uh, to encourage us was one of the themes of this book is God's sovereign providence. Him working behind the scenes, working his plans. There there are things that God is doing in people's lives. He is totally working his master plan. And the people that are right smack dab in the middle of God's work are clueless to it. Right? Like, do you think, you know, Boaz and Ruth, you know, as they're going through their story and all their struggles said, oi, or however Boaz would say, hey, Ruth, don't, you know, uh, uh, it's going to get better. Don't forget, Ruth, remember our great-grandson, our great, is going to be King David. 
Don't, you know, it, it's going to get better. I mean, there is no angelic visitation in this story like in so many other stories. Like, there is no angelic visitation explaining everything, easing the present struggle by revealing the future goal. Right, like you look at some of the other stories and wouldn't it be nice to have an angel come visit you this, you know, tonight as you lie down to go to sleep and hello there, this angel walks into your room and says, let me tell you what's going on in your life right now. You're worried about this, 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 and this. You're thinking this will never happen. And blah, blah. Let me tell you what's gonna happen. Like, wouldn't that be great? <laughs> like that, well, maybe it would or maybe it wouldn't. But, well, I think it would actually. But that doesn't happen in this story. This is just a real human story. They're just trying to survive, right? They're just trying to make it. But here's what is a key in this story. Uh, what the story shows us is that we have three people who are just trying to survive, but they're doing it from a place, a place of belief in and trust in God. And that's, a, that's the difference maker in all of this. See, all through the story, we see Naomi and Ruth trusting in God. Okay, things are real hard, but we're trusting God. He's gonna look after us. Our eyes are on you, God. We're trusting in you, and God looks after them through this godly man, Boaz. Boaz, who is, who is, uh, uh, who is living a life of, of submission to God and belief in God and obe obeying his laws, you know, and stepping up to be the kinsman redeemer, and they don't know it. I guarantee they don't feel it, but God is working his plans through their dependence and obedience on him. And remember... These people lived at a time, Judges, Judges sets this up. These people lived at a time in the history of Israel when the nation was out of control. God was forgotten and all the people did what was right in their own eyes. Does that sound remotely familiar? Where God was just sidelined, it was just sort of do as you will. But in that environment, these heroes of the story stayed true to God. They kept their eyes on him. They stayed true to his ways. What, what, what they, you know, the laws and the commands of God, they kept their eyes in him, their trust in him, even though, and this is important, even though they didn't see where it was all going. Like when they went to their graves, it wasn't like, oh, by the way, I mean, they didn't know. They didn't know that David was coming, and yet they still stayed faithful. What does this mean to us? Well, what this means to us is it puts incredible value on our mundane lives. It puts incredible value on the decisions we make, uh, how we treat people, you know, what we do with our, uh, our time, energy, money. I mean, it puts incredible value on all the stuff of life because whether you know it or not, the encouragement of the Book of Ruth is God is at work. God is working. You may not see it, you may not feel it, but God is working. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, with all this going for us, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground and don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of the master, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. Confident that nothing we do for him. When we live our lives and we get up each day and we go, I'm gonna do my best to follow you. I'm going to run my business under your, you know, under, under your, uh, uh, with you and Char as the boss. I'm going to treat my family, my neighbor, all the stuff of life. I'm going to do it, God, uh, and, you know, as, as a life focused on you and following you. And, and just like in the story, you know what, you and I have no idea what amazing work God is working right now in our lives. Like, you don't. 
We don't. Sometimes we get little glimpses, don't we? Sometimes we actually see the fruit pop through the soil. But most times we don't. There's uh, the great evangelist Billy Graham. You may or may not heard this story, but uh, I mean, here's a guy who was used by God to, uh, uh, you know, invite millions of people to to make a decision for Jesus. And somebody sat down and uh, talk about a genealogy. They they took the time to trace back the the faith genealogy, if you will, of Billy Graham. Like, how is it that Billy Graham came to know Jesus? And when they traced it back, they, came, they traced it back to a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball. Everyone knows Edward Kimball. Nobody knows Edward Kimball. Well, maybe you do, because this is a pretty famous story. But, you know, Edward Kimball didn't know it. Sunday school teacher, he had a little boy in his class, and you may have heard this name, a little boy named Dwight L. Moody, fairly significant young lad or man who, ca- who came to know Jesus in Edward's Sunday school class. Uh, Dwight grew up to be a preacher and he was instrumental and mentored a student named J. Wilbur Chapman who also grew up to be a preacher and he mentored a man by the name of Billy Sunday uh, who also grew up to be a preacher. Uh, Sunday mentored a man named Mordecai Ham. That's <laughs> a great name, okay? But he, he also grew up to be a preacher. And uh, one day in one of his service, a young man named Billy Graham walked into his service and gave his life to Jesus. Now, do you think Edward Norton on a Sunday morning when he got up early making coffee thought, woo, I'm, I'm, I'm the start of the chain, or I'm, you know, I'm a key part of the chain for Billy Graham. I mean, he, he didn't know that. Do you think there were times where Edward Kimball was like, I'm getting sick of these kids. These boys, that Dwight L. Moody, he's going nowhere, that boy can't pay attention, or whatever that, you know. <clears throat> but are you, do you think there's times where, where Edward thought, what's the use Right, you, you're loving on a neighbor, you're loving on someone, you're, you're, you're trying to be a good boss, you're, you're trying to, you know, like you're, you're, I mean, just all the stuff of life where you think, what's the use? Where you don't see the fruit. Here's a great quote from Mother Teresa. She says, God has not called me to be successful. He has called me to be faithful. Think of what she did. Just coming alongside the dying, loving on them, You know, he's called me to be faithful. Edward Edward Kimball was faithful to serve others, though he never saw the fruit. And one of the takeaways from Ruth, one of the challenges for you and I is, are we willing to be a generation where we may not see the full fruit of our obedience, but we still stay the course? Are we willing to do that? We are addicted to results in our culture. If we don't, you know, I'm going to do, I'm going to start working out. If I don't see results by tomorrow, what's the use? This is a waste of time. Give me a donut. Right? We are addicted to that. That's, that's, that's truer than you know. But, uh, but isn't that true? And, and we live at a time where most of us view our lives, most of us in the church who know better, we view our lives as this is it. And so, and, and if, you know, if you're going to do it, you better do it now. But the Bible teaches that's not it at all. This isn't it. You got, a, you got a long life ahead of you. But what the Bible does teach about this little blip where we're walking on planet Earth, he says, do you realize that the way you live now, the choices you make now, may, may have fruit down the road, that you won't see it 
until you're in heaven and Jesus comes up and he puts his arm around you and he says, hey, remember that club you started? Remember that time you gave that money? Remember that lady you just kept smiling at? Let me, let me show you the fruit of that. And he pulls back a curtain and you just see all these people who, who know Jesus because you just loved on some kid and taught him some stories on a flannel board, <laughs> you know, in Sunday school. See, that is what we're called to. That's what Ruth points to, to challenge us uh, in this life. Let me end off with this. Number three is this. <clears throat> it was real practical. Takeaways and challenges. You know, when we read and study the Bible like we've been studying Ruth, the Bible functions both as a mirror and a travel voucher. Uh, it functions like a mirror in this way. When we read the Bible, it's like we, we get to see our reflection in the word of God. And the Holy Spirit comes up, puts his arm around us and says, hey, let's, let's see how you're doing, you know, uh, compared to what, what God is asking. What God says is important. Let's see how you're doing. But it's also a travel voucher. Uh, the Bible gives us a picture of where God wants to take us. And we have a saying here in the vineyard, come as you are, but don't stay as you are. And, and that, that's both a welcome, that's an invitation, but it's also a, a, a challenge or a reminder that that, uh, th that doesn't mean we have a critical culture. What it means is we believe that this side of heaven, God is constantly working in our lives, working to make us more and more like Jesus. Romans 8, 29 says, for those whom God foreknew, those he loved and chose beforehand, he also predestined to be conformed predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Until we step out of this life into the next, you and I will constantly be spinning on the potter wheel, potter's wheel of God. He is the great potter, we're the clay. And we will, he'll constantly be working in your life and in my life. There's chunks he wants to take out, I'm not a potter, but there's stuff he's gonna mold and form us. And here's the thing, he's not just trying to make a better version of you. That's not it. He's trying to make you and uh Make me like Jesus. That's his plan. And so I want to end off today with a list of possible takeaways and challenges from the book of Ruth. And it's like I'm knocking the ball in your court. As I go through this list, ask the Lord which one of these is for me. All right? Numero uno. It's time to get married. Boop. What I mean is this. I mean, <laughs> I'm not sure. What? Okay. But for some of us, God is inviting us into a deeper level of commitment in our relationship with him. You don't fully receive the blessings of the kinsman redeemer unless you marry him. Ruth's life wouldn't have changed unless she married Boaz. The same goes in our relationship with Jesus. Some of us pursue Jesus, we only pursue him when we need a bag of wheat, when we only need some food. Well, you can start a relationship with Jesus that way, but, but your relationship with him is not going to grow. You need to marry him. And so for some of us, it may be for the first time that you finally say, okay, Jesus, okay, I have a lot of questions, I don't know how this works, but I am, I'm, I'm giving my life to you, right? Time to get married. Number two, it's time to move into the house. <laughs> what do I mean? What I mean is this, some of us have already been redeemed, right? You've been walking with Jesus for years, but you're still working in someone else's field, trying, you know, picking up the leftovers, striving and struggling to survive. And this might be a little confusing, but what I mean is we're still living in the barn, not his house. What I mean is your, your relationship with God is one of duty. 
It's of doing the right thing. It's not, your life isn't a response to his love. See, God uh, didn't redeem you for what you can do for him. He redeemed you for what he can do for you. And as that becomes more aware, you experience that, then, then, it's like, now go get to work. That's number two. Number three, learning to love like Jesus. Uh, the, a, a strong theme of the book of Ruth is, is about loving the foreigner. It's about loving someone who is different from us. And some of us struggle with this. I know I struggle with this. That there's a resistance in my heart towards certain people. I've got these little categories like, okay, you, yes, you, no. Right? And God wants to teach us to, uh, to love like Jesus you may struggle with different races, LGBTQ, the poor, the addict, those in authority, whatever it is, the book of Ruth reminds us that God is at work in our world and he's seeking a bride, reaping a harvest, and we must find our place in his mission of loving the lost. And what does that mean? It means for some of you, God has a very specific field that he wants you to work in, but it's gonna take a, a change of heart for you to be able to work in that field and to love those people, that person, the way that he wants you to love them. Next one is uh, uh, having the means but not the will. You have the means but not the will. And this, is, this might be a little more closer to home. I, I sense in this one that some of us, uh, there's someone in your life, in your family, maybe in your immediate or extended family, there's someone that you have the means to redeem them. That just like God worked through Boaz, he wants to work through you to redeem this family member, but you don't want to. And, and he wants to help you. He wants to help you. He wants to soften your heart towards that family member. That, that you would use your means, whether it's you know, your wisdom, your time, your money, whatever it is, your forgiveness, that you would use those things that God could work through you to redeem that person. Uh, final one is some of us have the will, but not the means. And really what I mean by that, it's interesting that the name Ruth means friendship. That's what Ruth means. For some of you, the, the takeaway, the challenge for you is that there's someone in, in your life that what God is asking you to do is just like Ruth did to Naomi, just to walk alongside them, to be a friend, to give yourself to that person. So why don't we stand up?